So I have a 55-gallon oil drum smoker that's connected to Twitter that tweets the temperature of the meat every five minutes. So I could basically leave my house and smoke a brisket. And the Food Network saw what I was doing in my backyard and said, hey, we'd love to make a TV show about the crazy things you build in your backyard. It was called Weapons of Mass Consumption. It never made it to air because for the pilot, we built a 6,000-pound pizza oven that cooked pizza in 45 seconds using robotically charged afterburners. But they burnt my buddy's eyebrows off on camera. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years. It takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to The Syndicate. Yes, I'm echoey. It's terrible, but we're going to have to deal with it because we have an incredible interview for you guys planned. Today, we've got Avidan Ross, founder of Root VC. Avidan's a hardware guy. He builds the Food Network kitchens in his backyard, and he's someone I had to get on the program because we needed someone to talk hardware. So thanks for coming today, Avidan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I originally found out about Avidan through Nick Moraine. He runs the Full Ratchet podcast. I'm sure a lot of you guys listen to his episode. If not, go check it out. But Avidan, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. So what's your deal? How did you get into venture? So my path to venture was probably not the most direct. I wasn't like interning at a venture capital firm or working in investment banking. I've actually, I was an engineer in my early, early days and you know worked in the first dot-com boom and had, had access and exposure to hardware when it was very unsexy, right? Cable modems, voice over IP handsets, fax to email gateways, and then sort of fell out of the entrepreneur hardware scene for several years as sort of the the markets, um, you know, the crash occurred. But got back into it more recently as I was investing in super late stage infrastructure, so big automation systems and hardware for solar farms and wind farms and water desalinization. And for me, I saw this opportunity where ultra, ultra early stage companies were coming to me and pitching startups that needed a lot less cash than I had ever seen before. And I knew that something, something drastic was going to change. I mean, I'm happy to go. I have like a full 10 minute like backstory that involves like burning my buddy's eyebrows off on, on the food network and like the whole nine. But I don't that, know. That, if that one sounds important. We need to hear, <laughs> we need to hear about a story. All right. So, so, so basically what happened is I was working at this really big established investment firm in Los Angeles and these guys from Tesla came to me and they said, we're going to, we can build a vehicle telematics business with $2 million. And I said, there's no way anybody's going to build physical hardware with only $2 million. Mind you, this was, I guess, 2009, 2010. So at the time, no one had really cracked the nut of getting ultra capital efficient hardware built. But they showed me the Elon Musk and Martin Eberhardt School of Building Hardware, which was build the Tesla Roadster, right? You remember the Roadster. It was not, it was, it was for, for somebody building a vehicle company, it was like insane the way that the Roadster was built. People had to pre-order their vehicle like it was a Kickstarter campaign, right? So Elon had no inventory risk. He knew exactly how many vehicles to build. And treated the vehicle like a rolling platform where you would buy the vehicle, but then you were buying into battery chargers and power, you know, power generation and all the all the other pieces. And then you obviously even 
purchased software upgrades to your, to your vehicle. So long story short, I basically went to my partners and I was like, guys, I believe that all these big established businesses that we're investing in are in big trouble because startups are going to be able to come to compete in the space. And they decided that they wanted to more deeply invest in the big established businesses. And I said, I really want to help the next generation of entrepreneurs succeed here. So I gave them a year of non-compete. I basically said to them, out of respect, I've been there almost eight years as the CTO. And I said, you know, I love you guys. So I won't make investments directly the day after I leave. And that left me a year to basically, you know, do whatever I kind of cared to do. And, and you know, they took, took good care of me enough that I didn't have to work for that year. And so I ended up spending about so part of what I ended up doing was going and traveling across the country drinking coffee, which we'll get back to later and my obsession with coffee. But um, in my process of, of learning about capital efficient hardware, I, you know, once an engineer, always an engineer, I decided to roll up my sleeves and actually like try out all this new technology that was making this possible. So got my hands on some early Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and, you know, traveled to Shenzhen in China to learn about how low cost prototyping was happening. And the only way to really learn about something is to build with it. And so I'm a huge foodie and I decided I was going to take all this tech I was seeing in this early stage hardware space, all these tools that everyone was using for low cost prototyping. And instead of building a business with it, I was going to prototype some products in my backyard. And so I started building deep fryers and immersion circulators and smokers. So I have a 55 gallon oil drum smoker that's connected to Twitter that tweets the temperature of the meat every five minutes. So I could basically leave my house and smoke a brisket. And the Food Network saw what I was doing in my backyard and said, hey, we'd love to make a TV show about the crazy things you build in your backyard. It was called Weapons of Mass Consumption. It never made it to air because for the pilot, we built a 6,000-pound pizza oven that cooked pizza in 45 seconds using robotically charged afterburners. But they burnt my buddy's eyebrows off on camera and were deemed a liability by the lawyers of the Food Network, which was uh, a blast, to say the least. But uh, yeah, that, that sort of ended the year of non-compete and I was able to really dive in deep and start investing in early stage startups, which was the, uh, the start of Root Ventures. And so, yeah, my buddy lost his eyebrows and I, I gained a venture capital fund. Sounds like you have some Mythbusters possible advertising right there. I mean, you put that on there, you're going to get a decent bit of coverage, but um, what would you have done if you had hit it big? One of these products had took off. Would you not be a VC now? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I think that Every time I build something, I'm building it for my own, uh, to scratch an itch of a thing that I want to see in the world. And I rarely ask the question of, would this make a great business, right? I, I, you know, a, six, a pizza oven that makes pizza in 45 seconds, one might argue that it, it could eventually become a great business, but the way that we were building it was more about that passion for, for, for building something bigger and faster and stronger and not necessarily building the best venture scalable business. And I think that from my perspective, I, I have a certain amount of impact making a single product and making a single piece of hardware and, and a single business. But I think I'm able to do more from being a VC who can help six to eight companies a year get off the ground and build something awesome. So we're up to 25 companies we've invested in. And I think our impact while not as deep, right? You know, running a company is there's no larger commitment than putting your entire self towards a company. But I think that I, I actually much prefer being a, a VC so that I can work on multiple different ideas and multiple different industries 
and seeing how technology can change those industries. So uh, I probably would still have ended up here. But the question of, you know, had the Food Network said yes, and I was traveling around with, uh, you know, Bobby Flay and, and, and Guy Fieri, I, I might actually not be a very happy person at this point. That's, that's really interesting. So you're clearly a builder. That's the genesis of Root, I imagine. Yep. So, so what's your thesis? So the thesis is that software changed so many industries, right? The idea that you could control data flow, use algorithms to basically take large swaths of data and change the way people work, right? The workflow was able to change because of software. People were already sitting in front of computers. So by bringing that software experience to mobile devices, all of a sudden you had people throughout their workday or throughout their personal life interacting with applications. We believe that the next generation is physical, tangible computing. The idea that a robot or a a connected device or any form of hardware is able to manipulate the physical world with that same layer of intelligence. And we think a lot of that has to do with the peace dividends. Chris Anderson has a great, great talk that he gives about. And Chris Anderson is the, the, he was the editor of Make Magazine and then ended up founding 3D Robotics and now runs a DIY autonomous car. I mean, he's just a very thoughtful person about how the world is changing as, as far as the physical and digital worlds merging. But he talks about how BlackBerry, Google, and Apple essentially broke the hardware industry into existence by generating peace dividends of their smartphone war. And the smartphone war essentially lowered the cost of wireless connectivity, it lowered the cost of mobile compute, and it lowered the cost of sensors. So you can have an accelerometer that costs pennies. And that only that's only possible because everyone was fighting to get the accelerometers put into Bluetooth, or I mean, I'm sorry, into Blackberries or iPhones or Android phones. And now we can count on everyone having Bluetooth connectivity on their body, Wi-Fi connectivity in every room, cellular connectivity in sort of the areas in between. And then the last thing is this massive amount of compute that was required in order to manage all these applications led to a world in which you can process all that data in the cloud. So taking massive amounts of accelerometer data or camera camera data, pushing it into the cloud using Wi-Fi or cellular, what have you, processing it in the cloud, or even now with GPUs sitting on device processing it at the edge, you're able to now make extremely intelligent decisions about how to articulate the world, how to use actuation to physically manipulate the world using essentially all the data that ever existed before or what we would call machine learning at this point and say, now all of a sudden, you know, you have articulated equipment, aka robotics or or drones or autonomous vehicles that are leveraging massive amounts of information that existed before just because all of these, these smartphones existed. So I guess our thesis is the every industry in the world is going to change in some way as long as it requires physical manipulation because of the advent of robotics and AI. And I, I think there's going to be the next generation of peace dividends is going to come from the autonomous car wars where everyone's fighting over autonomous cars and we're going to start to see another resurgence of, of low-cost sensors and compute. Not so, to mention the batteries. Elon's oh, yeah. doing a great job with driving that down. So is it fair to say that hardware plus AI, that's kind of the evolution of hardware? Yes. I would say that there, there has been 
a very long history of people building hardware. But the thing that has changed it all today was the fact that software and hardware coexist. And software, at this point, you can't say AI without saying, well, or you can't say software without thinking about massive data sets, machine learning, and subsequently the controversial terminology of AI uh, reaching hardware. So we don't invest in people who are building physical hardware that doesn't rely on deep software intelligence. So if somebody is building a physical widget that's very cool, like a, like a, a speaker, you know, that's beautiful, that has the nicest industrial design, that's not for us. Our, our, all of our roots, everyone on the team has backgrounds in uh, software electrical engineering. And so I, I studied computer science at Columbia and did a bunch of software development on cable modems and embedded systems. My partner, Kane, he worked on uh, drone communications uh, with the U.S. military while he was at Harvard. And then Chrissy studied electrical engineering at Stanford, but then she went on to become the EPM of the iPod and then Apple Watch and then ran hardware at Square and eventually was the uh, founding uh, hardware partner at Pearl, Pearl Automotive down in Santa Cruz. So all three of us are, are very much where software and hardware meet. So I guess AI, AI-powered hardware is a pretty, pretty solid uh, uh, linchpin for us as far as uh, investment thesis is concerned. What about in terms of moat? What are you guys looking for? So it's interesting. I, I mean, you know, the initial moat that we look for are teams that deeply understand how to get shit done, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's, it is, you can say somebody who has a massive amount of specific industry experience, and that's great, right? But but really, that experience, if it's not coupled with an entrepreneurial drive of just getting things done, you end up in a world where somebody can spin their wheels and is constantly looking for others to do things for them and relying on contractors and consultants and can ideate and ideate and ideate, whereas entrepreneurship is that moment where you came from you know, Apple or Google or SRI or Amazon, where you had a lot of infrastructure around you. And now all of a sudden, you know, we, we are excited to look at your startup idea, but the question is going to be, will you be able to exist and thrive building the whole system yourself? So I'll give you a great example is uh, Anna Shedletsky, who's the CEO of a company called Instrumental. And she spent the vast majority of her career uh, at Apple focusing on manufacturing engineering. So obviously, when she started a company focused on bringing AI to manufacturing, perfect industry overlap. But the thing that has made her most successful is a tenacity to get out there and just get things done and has recruited teams of people who have that same ideology. So that's, that's a lot of what we look for. But as far as the moat is concerned, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical answer of how someone builds a moat in AI is by building a data set for your training systems that is tagged and hard to recreate. So for example, Google has decided to open to, to, to make TensorFlow open source and free, which was hyper controversial. Everyone was like, well, if Google's an AI company, they just gave away the crown jewels. And the reality is they did not. Because from their perspective, Google's competitive advantage is the largest tagged trained dating data set that could possibly exist. And from their perspective, improvements to the core 
machine learning elements of TensorFlow benefit them just as much as it would benefit anyone else. If, if anything, it might, you might argue that it benefits them even more because they have a data set that no one has. So if you're going to go into a space where you're arguing that your AI wins, you better be talking about your proprietary tag data set that no one else has that can yield intelligent decisions. So uh, that, that to me is, is something super important on the AI front. And then I think from a hardware perspective, we think a moat gets built when you are providing, you know, there's oftentimes complexity around the robotics, which is just arguing that this is really hard to build. This is like triple black diamond of entrepreneurship. But then the, the, the second piece of it is that you are locking yourself into an industry that has a, so I'm talking about B2B for a second, not talking about consumer robotics, but in B2B, it's basically inserting yourself into being the brand where you are signing long-term large contracts with big companies that essentially those companies cannot exist without you, that you become so essential to their bottom line or their margins that they essentially are are stuck with you and the cost of switching is super, super high. You prefer B2B or B2C? So B2B, without a doubt, uh, we are, I'd say, we're probably three quarters B2B, maybe, you know, 25% B2C, but even that, uh, even some of our B2C investments have a bit of, you know, industrial or B2B opportunities. So it's very rare that we're purely investing in a B to C company. And I think that just has to do with our own, our own capabilities of rolling up our sleeves and helping out, right? None of us are sales and marketing people. None of us are, are industrial designers. Uh, none of us have really, really pushed the customer facing side of building a business. And then on top of it, I think that most of the consumer hardware pitches that we see are fantastic but they're not venture scale. And what I mean by that is if you build a really fantastic piece of hardware and you sell it for $100 and it is a consumer electronics product, it's most likely being sold around Christmas. And it's, a, it's possibly a gift. I mean, this is what Fitbit and GoPro realized. And the difficulty is that you've sold that product, you've, you've, you've collected a margin, but you don't have any recurring revenue that comes from that. And so essentially, if you did 10 million in sales this year, the goal for to have, you know, year over year 2x growth, you're going to need to do 20 million in sales next year and then 40 million in sales the year after. But essentially, you're going to have to sell your product to an entirely new set of customers. Whereas if you have a product that has an attachment around consumables or services or a platform, which is easy to say, really hard to execute in the consumer space then you're talking about something where you can stack revenue, right? Where like Dropcam was selling people for recording services. So each time they added new people, they essentially were collecting more and more revenue, you know, regardless of, so, so they basically were stacking. I mean, and that's probably the easiest way to look at it. I, by the way, I just got a battery low uh, notification from my Bluetooth. So if you, if, if I start talking and you don't hear anything, just let me know and I'll switch over to good old, you know, screaming at the computer screen. No worries, go in, go in mind mode. 
I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to thesyndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. So, I want to shift gears a little bit. Talk about how you're deciding which founders to invest in. You talked a little bit about the hustle, but everybody has a criteria. Most people do a terrible job elaborating on that. Is it gut feel? Is there a checklist beforehand? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll give you my terrible ones, the, 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 the guiding light, and then I'll try to elaborate on it. The guiding light is I, I, I ask myself, and I ask my partners to do the same thing, and it's very risky when we do this, but the question is, would we drop everything to join this company, right? And, and fundamentally, that brings up the question of how do people make decisions to commit to joining a company? And from my perspective, recruiting is the greatest, uh, uh, the most essential piece of early company building. Because if you can recruit great people to join your team, you're essentially getting the ultimate investor, right? A great engineer or a great salesperson or a great anybody who is joining your company is an investor who can only write one check, right? And that check is their own commitment. And they can only work for one company at a time. So they have to go through all those questions of, do I believe in the market? Do I want to work with this team? Do I believe that there is competition that we can overcome? Do I believe that this market can grow, that this can grow fast enough that I can get something interesting in an outcome? Now, obviously, there's a bunch of nuance around how much you get paid a salary and whether or not you're interested in a lifestyle business. And I'll get back to that. But we ask that fundamental question because we're trying to ask those exact same things. We're trying to figure out, do we want to work with these entrepreneurs? Because when we write a check, while we're not an incubator, we're not an accelerator, we write a check on Friday and we show up on Monday and we say, how can we help? What can we do? Can we make introductions? Can we help with recruiting? Can we help with strategy conversations? Can we help with early product roadmap? Can we help with contract manufacturer selection? Whatever we can do, we're going to try to help. And if we can't help, we're going to reach out to someone in our network to help. So if you don't like the person you're working with, you're not going to want to show up on Monday. And so that also leads to certain markets where we only invest in areas where we think we can be helpful in some way. So there are plenty of entrepreneurs that pitch us great ideas and we think they're going to make a lot of money, but it's just not an area that we're excited about enough to, to roll up our sleeves and be helpful. So we just don't do a lot of investments. We do six to eight deals a year, which means that we're able to reserve our time for that. And then the other pieces are just financial, right? We have to, you know, we're, we're, we have to return our fund to our investors and then hopefully make them a profit. 
So what that leads to us doing is making an analysis of, yep, do we see this company getting to a high enough velocity and scale to be able to exit at a dollar amount that justifies the risks we take as a VC firm? So what that basically means is if we invest at a, call it a $5 million valuation, just for ease of math here, and we put in 500K and we have 10% ownership in the company, um, there's a bunch of dilution that occurs in future rounds, but the goal is, is that that 500K can turn to a 20X or a 30X, which is some pretty, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in value the company needs to get to in order to, 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 to be a uh, fund returning outcome for us. That being said, there are a lot of great businesses that aren't worth $200 million. There are great businesses that are doing a couple million a year and are profitable and are paying for the entire 10 to 20 person staff to have a good life, a good lifestyle and aren't venture size and scale. So it's a bit controversial to say, but we actually don't believe most hardware companies should take venture, uh, venture money. Because once you take venture money once, you're committing to a track that sort of pushes you in that direction of then trying to raise a Series A and then trying to raise a Series B. And it's really those investors who are going to be pushing for you to go even bigger and faster and harder. And so you want to make sure you're building a business that can, that can accommodate that or is, or is conducive to that, I should say. Especially with hardware, it takes a ton of money. Typical startups, it's going to take twice as long. It's going to cost twice as much hardware. You can at least double that. How do you advise yep. startups? So, you know, as far as, uh, are you, you mean, how do we advise them as far as finances are concerned? Yeah, planning the future forward. And do you guys do follow-on? Yeah, so we absolutely do follow-on. We do a, a, a pretty, we do a significant amount of reserving out of our funds. So for, for every dollar we put in, initially we reserve uh, two-thirds of our fund for follow-on. So it's a pretty significant amount because we understand that as seed investors, our, our point of entry is extremely early and we've been very lucky to have had uh, the vast majority of our companies move on to series A or acquisition. I think we actually just ran the numbers recently that within 24 months, uh, 85% of our portfolio of our, of our startups either raise a series A or get acquired. We've had you know just a small handful of acquisitions, but but the vast majority just end up getting another round of funding, which means that if we want to continue to participate, we need to make sure that we've reserved enough capital to be able to. And you know, it's a long haul, and what we would say is be be smart about the syndicate of investors you put together. Make sure that you're raising money from people with patience and deep pockets and an understanding of what they're getting into, right? To find someone who's willing to invest in hardware, but doesn't understand how expensive it's going to be and what's truly required to succeed, you're better off not taking their money. And then the other thing is, you know, you got to be careful with um, taking on too many investors because then it's sort of death by advisors. You just have too many people pulling you in too many different directions. Now, that's not to say there's something wrong with putting it together via syndicate where there's a person representing a group of investors, because then that's that one person you're hopefully taking advice from. And you're, and you know, just like we have a bunch of uh, limited partners who are investors in our fund, people who lead a syndicate will have people behind them 
And every once in a while, one of our LPs is very valuable to a startup and we'll make an introduction. And the same thing goes for running a syndicate. But I think that fundamentally, you have to be prepared for a, a long, you have to be prepared for many rounds of fundraising. That if you're planning to raise, make sure you raise enough to get to a significant enough inflection point and then pad it with some contingency. But make sure you're raising enough in each round. And the fear of over diluting, and, and by the way, like I'm, I'm aware that this is a bit of self-serving advice, but like don't worry too much about your ownership. Make sure that you have enough capital to be successful rather than over-optimizing for the ownership levels. Um, and I am fully aware, calling the kettle black. I mean, we, we, we care a lot about our ownership, but uh, so I, I, I can empathize. But I think that the hardest thing is is really setting yourself up for success is understanding what it's truly going to cost. And then understanding that there's a bunch of, you know, there are all sorts of roadblocks and speed bumps you would never account for, like your contract manufacturers changing terms on you three weeks before your product is complete or distributors deciding to randomly find inventory in a warehouse six months after and holding back payment and sending back old gear that you didn't even realize was out there. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of scary stops along the way. Don't forget customs. We had packages and Japanese customs for two freaking months before they, eventually we just had to scrap it. You're, when you're dealing with the government and when you're dealing with physical products, it's so much more complicated. I want to jump into the lightning rounds now. How's that sound, Abidan? Sure. Sounds great. The first investment you did? Uh, Wallaby. It was a, an alternative to the, um, oh, got coin, the credit card, where you, audit, where you tap the button and it automatically changed your credit card. So they basically connected a credit card to all your pre-existing credit cards. And whenever you would swipe it, it would automatically route that transaction to whichever card gave you the more, most rewards, points, or mileage. Super smart tracking people's spend, um, but I, I definitely realized that I didn't know all that much about fintech. That was a tough one, but we we actually had a great. They sold the bank rate, and we made a a, a very very healthy return for all of our investors. So we were super excited about it. But uh, it was an interesting path to see competition pop up. Very hard when you don't know the industry. What's um two biggest wins to date? Uh, the ones that have not exited yet. Right. They, uh, there are, there are some really fantastic companies in the portfolio. We're invested in momentum machines, which is making hamburger making robots, uh, which are phenomenal. The robot produces 400 hamburgers an hour with zero human intervention using all organic ingredients for the price of a Big Mac, which is pretty amazing. And they're, they're, they're going to, that'll, that will change the world. Another is particle. So particle is the largest IOT professional IOT development platform in the world. So if Raspberry Pi and Arduino are for hobbyists and makers, Particle is the professional version that is wireless from the start. Every single Particle developer board has some form of wireless radio, and then they provide you the full enterprise stack for fleet management. So they just raised a, a Series B led by Spark, um, which was fantastic, and we sit on the board there and are, are super excited about how they built their you know, over a hundred thousand paying developers using using that platform. Home runs are great, but we also like the massive losses. Anti-portfolio. Anybody that you missed on, you passed on Uber, you passed on someone great. Uh so so Jamie Simonoff at Ring, he and I went back and forth a couple times and um 
I passed because at the time he had only built DoorBot. And, and it's an amazing story of resilience and tenacity and just like a strength of character that Jamie has was that DoorBot was the first version of Ring. And I think he had one and a half stars on Amazon and people literally were like trying to find his home address to like throw the door bots through his window with a, with a letter wrapped around it. And Jamie and I, you know, exchanged emails and I was basically like, you know what, this is too hard, the consumer hardware space. And, and, and I don't think you have what it takes. And man, oh man, was I wrong because he went back to the drawing board, renamed the company, recreated the product, created ring and the rest is history. That's been a, an amazing, amazing, amazing success. So kudos to Jamie. Every time I see him, he loves to, he, he, he actually reminded me about the email exchange by pulling it up on his phone the last time I saw him and being like, you totally just, you know, shame on you. <laughs> it happens. It happens. What are you excited about? I'm sure about? we'll have more. I'm sure, I'm sure we will have more. That's just, that's, that's the excitement. The, the rising tide raises all ships. So we want to see a lot of companies succeed. And since we can only invest in, you know, six to eight a year, it means that by definition, we're not going to be able to, to get into everything great. What are you pumped about today? What gets you up? Uh, people focusing on really unsexy, boring industries and bringing robots to them. So robot, robotics to long haul trucking, garbage collection, agriculture, construction, oil and gas, natural resource extraction. Uh, I mean, just like the, the, the more industrial and unsexy it is, the more excited we are about bringing like true innovative, I mean, like, like literally these industries have not seen tech in 30 years. So if you walk in and you don't immediately say to them, hey, we're going to give you like a proper database to replace that piece of paper that you guys use, but instead say, forget that step. Let's just bring in robotics and make a fully closed loop system that instead of logging what happens, let's just auto heal everything. Let's auto correct everything. And that to me is like, that's, that's the most exciting, exciting thing. You figure out how to do that with government. I would be very excited. Uh, government, you know, that's, I will, I will stay away from that one. Okay. Very good. Very good. What are you reading, listening to today to stay informed, stay up to date? So, it's interesting. I have I have a uh, a Kindle that's way too full with a lot of books that I've gotten halfway through, um, which is the hard part about having two little kids. You know, I, I read a lot of uh, a lot of blogs and a lot of uh, people with informed informed opinions, but in more disparate places. So obviously, reading a lot of stuff on via Twitter on like Medium and whatnot. But I'm reading a couple books about uh, about team team building and start with why. So like how to persuade, how to, how to uh, incite uh, excitement in teams to, so we can share it with our entrepreneurs about how they can, how they can incite leadership and, and, and get people on board with whatever they're building. As a rule of thumb, if you don't, if you start the book and don't finish, it means you just got to delete it. And I read a great productivity hack. So specifically with business books, if it has primarily one theme. You're able to kind of scan the cover and then read the second or third chapter. It depends on the book. And that more or less is the core concept and everything else is examples after that. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, my partner Kane thinks the exact same way. And then I finally started bringing in books. I, I actually, I just have my, let me, let me like scale. Okay, here we go. Um, so there's a live test. Yeah, here we go. Okay. 
quick ones. All right. So this one made me quit my job and start venture capital. This one I thought was the thing that was supposed to get me to stop smoking cigarettes many years ago, but it really uh, actually wasn't about that. I quit smoking cigarettes like unrelated to this book. This was actually a book about how people build habit cycles in their products, which is amazing. So it was really about how do you create a habit amongst consumers or businesses where they are in a habit of using your product, right? So how did toothpaste originally become a, a habitual product? Super interesting. Obviously, the Bible of Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, sorry, I should be saying the names of these books. So Lynchpin uh, was a great book that basically exposed the idea that a lot of organizations build uh, this idea that everyone's dispensable. But if you promote and support people who are indispensable, you're able to actually build even better organizations and don't live with the fear that if you have an indispensable talent, that somehow the, com- the company is, is going to fall apart without you. Uh, power of Habit, was I just described as building habitual responses. Innovator's Dilemma, which is like, why never get comfortable with your position at the top because startups are coming after you. And Start With Why, which is just a great, a great book on how to essentially inspire people through leadership, like conversations of leaders. So obviously, you know, this then leads to a whole other set of books and then geek dad. So I can build projects with my kid. That's pretty awesome. On a semi-related note, did you kick the cigarette habit when you had kids? Uh, Actually well before I had kids. So it was a, uh, it was when I, when I actually wanted to start dating seriously, I realized I didn't want a girl who liked a guy who smoked cigarettes. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely great. I'll be done. I know you're a busy guy. I want to let you get on with the day, go on with changing the world. Where's the best place for people to follow up? Actually, one last thing. What's one thing you'd like to leave people with today? It can be a quote. It can be a mission statement. It can be a call to action. What I would say is, you know, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about building something and you've had that itch of just wanting to physically create something, don't ignore it. Learn, reach out, call people, talk to people, reach out on Twitter, reach out just any way you possibly can, because the future is happening. And everybody who's in the world of building robotics and hardware is super supportive and will help you get that done. So reach out and we're all going to try and be helpful. But it's 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 a it's a wild ride. It's super exciting, and uh, there are a lot of people out there to support you and help you. So don't hesitate to ask. The Wild West of IoT. Thanks for coming on today, Avidan. Absolutely, my pleasure. And guys, I want to apologize for the echo I got. Had to record in a new location. This is not a great one, but have to do what you got to do. Got a, a guy like Avidan. There's no way I can blow off this interview. This has been incredible. Thanks for coming on, Avidan. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you've liked it, the syndicate.vc, you know where to go. Subscribe, get on our newsletter, join our syndicate. Investor, of course. And if not, sorry. But uh, yeah, until next time, I got to go grab some coffee and get to work. I'm sure you do too. Thanks, Avidan. Thanks. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join. 
you can get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.